Vladimir Putin. Well, he just heard said things that I've heard some of the best theologians say. He's attacking political correctness. He's saying we need to uphold morality. He's denounced Satanism, pedophilia. He's denounced the uh, abolition of Christian holidays. All these things that we as Christians believe, he believes. You know what held me up on this? You know my big hang-up? Um, well, he was ex-KGB. And so as this old Bircher, and I was in a big holdout, I'm still waiting for Galitzin's prediction to come true and for, uh, okay, he's just going to re reinstate communism. No, he's a genuine Christian. This is Global Storyline with your host, Dean W. Arnold, where we examine events current and past and place them in the Global Storyline. Okay, we're here uh, with uh, James Perloff, who uh, is, uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself a little bit in terms of what he's done in the past and what books he's uh, authored, uh, but from my perspective, I'll just, I'll just say that uh, James is, uh, I think, one of the top communicators right now in the country and the world, uh, just uh, writes incredible articles that just nail, nail the, the truth, uh, solid documentation, little bit of sense of humor mixed in with it and uh and he's just a he's someone that we need during this time so uh i'm so glad that he's he's uh with us and and writing uh prolifically um and uh and so i'll let him tell us a little bit about his background but we're here today uh, on globalstoryline.com uh interviewing him uh and he and i having a conversation together because uh, we both written an article this week that, uh, that sort of dovetails with each other. Uh, the article he wrote uh, is called, uh, entitled, um, The Unthinkable Has Happened. Russia and America Have Traded Places. Um, and, uh, and that's a fantastic article that I would refer to you to read uh, at jamesperloff.com, P-E-R-L-O-F-F. Uh, and then I wrote an article this week that, that uh, is somewhat similar uh, at globalstoryline.com, which is Trump's Secretary of State, his pick, received Russia's Order of Friendship Award. In a multipolar world, is it bad to be a friend of Vlad? Uh, <clears throat> and so that article goes into great length about uh, uh, Rex Tillerson, uh, who's been picked by Trump for Secretary of State. Uh, and his him having received that award by Putin, uh, that's all over the news that maybe this is such a terrible thing that he's a friend of Vladimir Putin. Of course, I take uh, exception to that idea. And uh, also, uh, we talk about what it means to be a multipo multipolar world as opposed to a unipolar world. We'll get into that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, you'll be hearing a lot about Rex Tillerson next week because his confirmation hearings in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee are Tuesday and Wednesday, I believe. Uh, so it'll be all over the news, and uh, and this dovetails well well with uh, uh, James's article uh, about uh, the irony of Russia and America uh, possibly switching places in terms of spiritual leadership in the world. Uh, and I'll let in James introduce himself here in a second, but first let me just say I'm a little uh, casual here in my uh, lumberjack outfit um, for our session today. Uh, and that is because uh, here where I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we've had a blizzard. And uh, so it's pretty overwhelming. And so we're all kind of dressed in our uh, winter uh, outfits. Uh, we have 
an unbelievable amount of about a half an inch of snow on the ground. And so uh, the, the, the town here has pretty much gone crazy. So just wanted to explain to you why I'm, uh, I'm, I have the informal look here. Look, it looks like you're a little bit informal too there, Jim. And, and, uh, but you probably got a bigger excuse. You know, I, I think you live farther north. Well, uh, I usually uh, dress pretty informally for these interviews, but I try to not to wear T-shirts. <laughs> well, I'm not wearing a T-shirt. <laughs> we may be having a genuine blizzard here in New England. It's snowing pretty hard uh, outside right now where I live in Massachusetts. And actually, uh, the weather forecasting uh, has gone way downhill. The weather forecaster today only dared say we'll have a few inches. No specification for the first time ever of how many inches. It's, it's a combination of... Um, the Rothschild establishment now owning the weather modeling, owning the weather channel, and owning the weather. And so you never know exactly what the weather's going to do or whether the forecast is right or not. But Well, um, we, we, won't yeah. go, we won't go there today. Yeah, no, uh. we won't go into that. But I do have an article uh, on the Rothschilds and the weather, which people can read in my uh, – there's a whole thing called um, uh, weather derivative where people can make you know, billions of dollars traded on the weather. And, of course, when you control the weather and the weather forecast, You've got that market locked up, but that, that's for another time. Yeah, and they've been talking about that since the 40s and 50s. It's, a, it's pretty much reality, but uh, anyway, um, go ahead and uh, just quickly tell us about yourself, what you've written, your background, and uh, and then you can kind of start moving into this article because uh, I think uh, this article uh, uh, really does relate to your background. Well, it does, and I started out uh, my journal career, journalism career, writing in uh, my first article in 1985 for the New American Magazine, continued to write for them for 27 years, and uh, the New American was the journal of the John Birch Society, and uh, a very respectable journal, and one of those few journals that um, looked at the issues that all media looks at today. It talked about the Federal Reserve, the Council on Foreign Relations that opposed globalism and supported the U.S. Constitution, and it was a majorly anti-communist and uh, I wrote a bestseller for them called the shadows of power which is a study of the history of the council on foreign relations which is the organization that the establishment uses to control American foreign policy and supply cabinet level personnel and it pursues a goal of world government and um, then in the 90s I uh, got uh, I become a Christian in 1983 and I got very interested in the creation evolution debate because I um, uh, after becoming a Christian, I still had held over uh, I, uh, questions about how man came about. And was there, I found that the Darwin Theory of Evolution with the House of Cards, I wrote two books on that, did a lot of radio shows and PowerPoints. Then after 9-11 came along, I, um, I realized that uh, the geopolitical sphere was more urgent than what I was doing in the creation evolution uh, arena, even though I continued to work in that. And uh, my latest book is called Truth is a Lonely Warrior, which is a, a real update of the shadows of power. It um, is a A to Z primer on the New World Order. You know, it covers not only the CFR in this case, but the Federal Reserve, media control, false flags. That's why I open it up with false flags that have led us into wars. And I talk about Freemasonry, full chapter on 9-11, full chapter on the Vietnam War, uh, there was a chapter on weather control, a chapter on vaccines, which is all part of the population control agenda, a chapter on Zionism. And um, so I, I try to to give people something they can give to a skeptic because uh, I've said this many times before, but if you just give people 9-11 and 
it's like giving people one piece of a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you look at one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, it doesn't make sense. But if you see the full puzzle and all the pieces together, now that piece does make sense. Because uh, if you just show them 9-11, they're going to say, well, our own government would never do that to us. And if they did, they'd tell us about it on, on network TV news. But so you have to tell them who controls network news and who controls the government. And you have to give them that, that full picture before they can begin to understand it. So let, let, uh, let me stop you there for a second. Yeah. Um, I, I own the book, great book, highly recommended. Uh, uh, I gave uh, uh, one of your books to a friend for Christmas. So uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a believer in it. Um, and I just wanted to mention that, uh, I don't know if you felt this, but I think in the last couple of years, I think the whole concept of false flags and the possibility that something could be a false flag has actually started to emerge as a, uh, and I don't know if you'd say acceptable, but a, a, a topic that is, is actually uh, willing to be somewhat entertained in certain sections <laughs> of, uh, of, of discussion, uh, which to me is a huge accomplishment in terms yes. of uh, uh, a truth getting out there. And uh and so I'm encouraged by that. I mean, we have a long way to go, but, uh, you know, someone who might be 25, 30 years old and doesn't really have <laughs> the breadth of uh, insight that you and I would have having been around when you all you had was three channels and, and that sort of thing. It's uh, right. <laughs> we, we, we have come a long way. Uh, and then, you know, with what President Trump is doing in terms of, you know, he'll he'll tweet and say he doesn't necessarily believe the CIA. Uh, you know, these are, uh, these are pretty extraordinary, uh, developments just in the last year or so. Uh, and so I'm pretty encouraged, uh, and I, th and I think there's a long way to go, but I think, uh, the work that people like you have done for 30, 40 years, uh, uh, and others, you know, who, you know, the lonely warriors back then, I, you're, you're still lonely, but you're not quite as lonely, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you're right. Uh, I was very encouraged, uh, you know, during the debates, Trump started to use the phrase mainstream media, and that's the first time I ever heard a major candidate acknowledge there was such a thing as the mainstream media as, as differentiated from alternative media. In this last election, even though uh, many of us still entertain doubts about Trump for a number of reasons, um, it was a victory for those of us uh, who were uh, – all media was pretty much aligned against Hillary Clinton. We wanted to see an end of the Clinton-Bush era because uh, they wanted they wanted a Jeb Bush Hillary Clinton presidency. That's how it started out. They didn't get it. They had to settle for second or third best. And uh, this was a big victory, a David over Goliath. And people are starting to turn off CNN. In fact, there was recently um, a couple of weeks ago CNN's ratings dropped so so low they were trailing Cartoon Network and viewership. And so yeah, hats off to alternative media. Uh, it is making great strides. One more thing. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think we've quite really digested just how crazy it's become, but, uh, uh, you know, Fox News was being pretty unfair. And uh, and Trump, uh, he just said, well, OK, then the next debate, I'm not I'm not even going to come. I'm the one who brings all your ratings to the debate, so I, I just <laughs> won't come to your debate. So a, uh, a presidential candidate, uh, now a president who even thinks that way. Is mm -hmm. is just we we are definitely in a huge sea change, an absolute revolution. Things have been turned upside down in terms of how information gets distributed to the masses, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a great time to be alive, uh, uh, really, for people like us. And uh, uh, but I would say, 
we saw the same thing early on when Trump would treat things, uh, tweet things like the New York Times is corrupt, <laughs> CNN, what a fraud, you know, uh, you know, just just uh, uh, we didn't we, we didn't get a transition uh, because every single presidential candidate up until Trump just kind of bowed to the media, <clears throat> supplicated to the major media. They might disagree with them cordially, but they would never, you know, seriously take them on. We went from that to Trump, who just out and out just tweets them and calls them frauds and calls them corrupt and calls them a joke. And not only doesn't take a hit for it, but he becomes the president. So couple that with him telling Fox, I'm not going to come to your debate and the, all the things that are going on. You know, the, the, uh, the most powerful person in the country right now, arguably other than Trump, is his chief strategist, uh, Steve Bannon, who is... Uh, the owner or somehow one of the owners of uh, Breitbart Media, um, alternative media. So we really, it, we really have had the revolution. Things have turned upside down, and, uh, uh, and I'm pretty excited about it. But anyway, I, I interrupted you. You told us a little bit about your background. Go ahead and uh, tell us about this recent article you wrote and begin to uh, kind of go through that. Okay. Uh, my recent post, uh, again titled The Unthinkable Has Finally Happened, Russia and America Have Traded Places. Um, going back to my background, uh, writing for the John Birch Society's magazine, The New American, very good magazine. Uh, in the 80s, we saw America as the leader of the free world, and that was rightly so. You know, we had our Bill of Rights, we had a prospering middle class, and on the other side, you had the communists, you had the Iron Curtain. You had uh, the Soviet Union uh, headquartered in, in Moscow, which had been birthed with the, the Bolshevik Revolution. They'd killed millions of people. And uh, I cited the figure given by the Black Book of Communism in my article, which is from Harvard University Press, which is very liberal. They put the number of deaths by, by the communists at 100 million, but other sources have put it much higher than that. And of course, they built the Berlin Wall. They built the Gulag through a police state where you'd report on your neighbor. It was Orwellian. The, the state controlled the media. You know, there's no freedom of uh, speech or freedom of, of the press. You know, they uh, created the Holodomor, which uh, killed millions in the Ukraine. And they crushed the 1956 Hungarian revolt. Um, and uh, so they were the bad guys. And uh, we were the good guys, and that's how we saw it, and uh, that was that was correct. Now, in 1985, there was a phenomenon that took place, which was that Mikhail Gorbachev came to power, and all of a sudden you had this glasnost and liberalization in uh, Russia. And I have to tell you that uh, our reaction to that, the magazine was one of great skepticism because they're used to Soviet tricks, you know, and uh, we figured this is just a this is just a deception. To get the West to disarm, and we had very good reason. We had support from that from uh, the world's number one, the, the, the top KGB defector, Anatoly Golitsyn. He'd written this book, New Lies for Old, 1984, the year before uh, Gorbachev came to power, and um, Golitsyn's book was ignored by the mainstream media. Um, although he is, you actually can see his escape from Russia depicted in the opening scenes of. Alfred Hitchcock's 1969 movie, Topaz, which is kind of interesting. It was the inspiration for that beginning of that movie. But uh, this book, he said, they're going to liberalize in Russia, but they're not going to be sincere. He said, um, 
the Russian strategy is that if they they uh, talk softly and look charming, that will disarm. That's their that's their strategy. And so you can see a very liberal leader. He described the guy who was just like Gorbachev. He said you can see the Berlin Wall come down, and he made over 300 predictions, and 94% of them came true. And so I put a lot of stock in Golitsyn, and he predicted that in the end that uh, communism was going to reappear. And he said it would reappear in the end, after the West had been deceived and did this army, it was going to reappear as uh, in its worst forms from the Leninist-Stalinist days. He said, uh, so for a long time, I was waiting for that. I was waiting the day that Russia was going to uh, reemerge as a communist state. And um, there, there are a couple of, of factors that need to be mentioned regarding this. Uh, one is that the Mikhail Gorbachev glasnost transition had an angle to it that I've only come to discover in recent years. I've written a post on it, but when uh, the Soviet Union liberalized, what should have happened in America, what should have happened is that we should have started taking down the military industrial establishment. I mean, the Cold War and all that military buildup was all about the threat of communism. So with the threat of communism gone, there was no need for this huge military establishment. But what happened was, as soon as Gorbachev came to power, and I believe this is the underworkings of the deep state New World Order, as soon as he came to power and the communists ceased to be the major threat they'd been for all those decades, all of a sudden the war on terror began. Gorbachev came to power in 1985, and in 1986, Reagan bombed Libya, the first act of the war on terror. And that was in response to actually a deception by the Mossad, who set up a transmitter in Libya, which de deceived the United States into believing that Libya was responsible for a bombing in Germany at the Labelle discotheque. It was all a Mossad operation. And that's in Viktor Ostrovsky's book, The Other Side of Deception. He's a former um, Mossad officer. So this, that information is from the inside of Mossad. But uh, there also were movies coming out in the mid-80s, like uh, Invasion USA with Chuck Norris and, of course, uh, Back to the Future. And all of a sudden, the Muslims were the bad guys, not the communists. And then in 1991, when the, the Soviet Union broke up, uh, we had our first uh, land war in the Middle East against uh, Saddam Hussein in 1991. And uh, what happened was, uh, as the, Soviet, the communist threat went away, we simply transitioned over to a Muslim threat. And what we're really doing there with all these uh, uh, these uh, Arab Spring Wars, the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, destabilizing Egypt. It's all about creating greater Israel. That's really another subject that takes us away from what's happening in Russia right now. But that's that was a big part of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev transition. But, of course, as you know, they're looking for this new world order. And I think that when Russia was going down the drain under Yeltsin and they had these uh, Jewish Rothschild oligarchs, uh, seven men who owned half the wealth in Russia and pe people in Russia were starving. They thought that Russia was going to be absorbed into uh, avoiding this one world government. You know, that's what Norman Dodd talked about. Uh, you've, you've, I'm sure you've seen this famous interview with Norman Dodd, the Congressional Investigative, Investigating Foundations, who talked to Rowan Gaither, the head of the Ford Foundation, who said that their goal was to merge the United States with the Soviet Union. And I figured that that's where we're going to go. We're going to see the rebirth of communism as we turn towards socialism here in America. But instead, something very different happened in Russia. Putin came to power. And all of a sudden, he got rid of those oligarchs. And all of a sudden, um, Russia began to rejuvenate. 
And I think that the first tip-off that something really wonderful was happening in Russia came when I started watching some of Brother Nathaniel's videos. Now, he, like you, he's an Orthodox, um, a Russian Orthodox believer. And he started talking about Eastern Orthodox is really the the, the phrase Eastern, that I would use. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, they, they all work, but that Eastern encompasses more than Russia. There's uh, Orthodox, Church, Orthodox, Orthodox churches Orthodox all over the world. Sure. Within mm -hmm. it. But in Russia, of course, it's Russian Orthodox. And uh, I started to watch Putin and his testimonies about his faith. And I started to realize that he, I already been uh, I'm very impressed by his uh, action in Syria, which put a halt to this Middle East madness that's been going on ever since 9-11 with one a war after another based on a false pretext. I mean, we went into Afghanistan on the pretext that they were shielding Osama bin Laden, the alleged uh, perpetrator of 9-11. Now we know that, well, uh, I, this won't be convincing to everyone, but uh, it's really the Zionists were behind 9-11. And uh, I certainly have articles uh, on that. My next to last article was about uh, Netanyahu and the Israeli connections to 9-11. To and of course, we've been fighting these wars on behalf of Israel. Um, but uh, I was very impressed by his common sense. And um, uh, it's not a, a rebirth of communism that's taking place. It's a rebirth of Christianity with over 26,000 new churches open, 800 monasteries, um, I've got video, several short video clips embedded in the article, but there's one of him just uh, this past November uh, raising a statue of Vladimir the Great with Patriarch Kirill, uh, I'm sorry, Patriarch Kirill. Um, and just and uh, just but, to uh, just just to clarify, Vladimir the Great is not Vladimir Lenin of the Russian Revolution. It's uh, right. it's a thousand years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. Vladimir the Great, the first the uh, the first Christian king of Russia. Who right. brought Christianity to Russia in the late 900s? Mm -hmm. Now uh, you'll find these embedded clips, and you know uh, the interview you and I are doing is not quite technically sophisticated, so we can do video plays. But I, before I turn this back, I want to read a quote that I uh, do have. Uh, he says it live. You'll see Putin saying this live. But I want to. Uh, uh, I, I printed out. I took screenshots of the subtitles of what Putin was saying. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and show them up there. It works a lot better than you think. Uh, well, I, I'm not. I know quite how to do that on a, on a Skype interview. Uh, oh, I'm just saying, if you got a picture, hold it up. Oh, well, this is just a. Uh, this is not a Putin. It's just of the uh, the uh, the subtitles, which people won't be able to see, but I can see. So I'm just going to read. Here's what Putin said for his last Christmas message. Quote: We see that many Euro-Atlantic states have taken the way where they deny or reject their own roots, including their Christian roots, which forms the basis of Western civilization. In these countries, the moral basis and any traditional identity are being denied. National, religious, cultural, and even gender identities are being denied or relativized. There, politics treats a family with many children as equal to a homosexual partnership. Faith in God is equal to faith in Satan. The excesses and exaggerations of political correctness in these countries indeed leads to serious consideration for the legitimization of parties that promote the propaganda of pedophilia. The people in many European states are actually ashamed of religious affiliations, indeed frightened to speak about them. Christian holidays and celebrations are abolished or neutrally renamed, as if one were ashamed of those Christian holidays. With this method, one hides away the deeper moral value of these celebrations. And these countries try to force this model onto other countries globally. 
I'm deeply convinced that this is a direct way to the degradation and primitivization of culture. This leads to deeper demographic and moral crises in the West. What can be better evidence for the moral crisis of a human society than the loss of its reproductive function? And today... Now that's a quote you know, from that's a quote from that's Billy that's Billy Graham that's Billy, that's, that's is, is that you Vladimir. is that you or is that is that Billy Graham or, or no that's not the Pope is it that's too this, moderate this, for the Pope this is Vladimir Putin oh it's Vladimir Putin gotcha this is what I wish we'd hear Western uh, diplomats saying okay continuing this quote it says and today nearly all the quote unquote developed West, Western countries cannot survive reproductively not even with the help of migrants. Without the moral values that are rooted in Christianity and other world religions, without rules and moral values which have formed and been developed over millennia, people will inevitably lose their human dignity and become brutes. And we think, meaning the Russians, it is right and natural to defend and preserve these moral Christian values. One has to respect the right of every minority to self-determination, but at the same time, there cannot and must not be any doubt about the rights of the majority. At the same time as this process at a, at a national level in the West, we observe on an international level the attempts to create a unipolar, unified model of the world to relativize and remove institutions of international right and a national and national sovereignty. And, and this says in parentheses, Putin is speaking about U.S. imperium. In such a unipolar, unified world, there is no place for sovereign states. Such a world merely needs vassals. From a historical perspective, such a unipolar world would mean the surrender of one's own identity and of God-created diversity, unquote, Vladimir Putin. Well, he just heard said things that I've heard some of the best theologians say. He's attacking political correctness. He's saying we need to uphold morality. He's denounced Satanism, pedophilia. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's denounced the uh, abolition of Christian holidays. Um, Same-sex marriage. We need to respect traditional marriage. Um, all these things that we as Christians believe, he believes. And if you think he's a phony, I just invite people to go there, and you'll see him talk about his his uh, his background. Yeah, he. You know, we know what held me up on this. You know, my big hang-up um, was he was ex-KGB. Uh, you know, uh, he was in the KGB from 1975 to 1991. And so as this old Bertrand, I was in a big holdout. I'm still waiting for Galitzin's prediction to come true and for, uh, okay, he's just going to re reinstate communism. No, he is a genuine Christian. And um, in fact... Well, let me, let me I'm going to stop you. I want to go back and forth a little I mean, bit. Yes, I mean, I've been talking for a while, so let's, I don't want so much, and people go to sleep if I keep talking. So uh, no, that's all right. No, that's okay. Um, uh, well, let me, let me, uh, I got a lot of questions and a lot of things to piggyback on, but uh, uh, for me to talk a little bit about my article. I'll jump on the last part of the Putin quote, which is talking about a multipolar world. And so the article that I've written this week that's uh, preparing for the Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State uh, confirmation hearings next week, basically says, is, is it okay to be a friend of Vlad? He, he won this award, the Order of Friendship Award with Russia. And uh, I got a little humorous there at the beginning because I, I looked, you know, I looked up who else has won this award. There's been 50 recipients and the, the award winners include uh, the prime minister of Canada, the head of the Europe, European Jewish Federation, uh, a figure skater, a, uh, a Polish film director, uh, LeBron James's basketball coach. I mean, we're not talking about we're not talking about evil villains here. We're just talking about people who've who've uh, 
done good things that uh, Russia appreciated. Uh, they appreciated Rex Tillerson as the head of Exxon because they've worked at some very large deals to increase trade between the U.S. and Russia uh, mm-hmm. on, on the most important commodity in the, in the world. But anyway, I start the article that way, but I really ask the question, is it bad to be a friend of Vlad? And of course, the the answer to the rhetorical question is no, of course not. Um, and I and I asked the question in the title: Is it in a multipolar world? Is it bad to be a friend of Vlad? And the answer is no, definitely not. Um, but let's talk about multipolar world. And it, it, these large words might be intimidating to somebody. They're pretty obvious: unipolar world, one empire, one country dominating everything. Multipolar world, several. Now, from 1920 or so till 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were a bipolar world, bipolarity, and Russia and the Soviet Union basically kept each other at bay. Mutually assured destruction was was the uh, the kind of the formula that kept the nuclear war from breaking out. Uh, Soviet Union collapsed. 1991 is usually the figure given, the date given for that. And uh, as you said, uh, America had a chance to bring peace, you know, uh, disarm and quit being so militaristic. They blew it. Uh, And the neocons uh, jumped into the vacuum and started all their invasions of the Middle Eastern countries and doing everything they could to pepper the borders of Russia to try to bring Russia down completely. Well, that backfired on America. But where we're moving to now, uh, and there's some philosophical stuff I talk about in my article in terms of why unipolarity doesn't work just in the abstract. Um, you always need to have the offsetting balancing powers. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, with the rise of China uh, in the, uh, well, since about 2000, uh, and, the, and the reemergence of Russia since about 2000, we have seen what is an obvious next step for world geopolitics, which is a tripolar or a multipolar one, two, three superpowers offsetting each other and providing a balance of power for us to have peace in the world. Uh, Because what do we already know as Americans? If you study American history, the Founding Fathers always taught us that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so the Founding Fathers set up three branches of government. They set up uh, state government versus uh, federal government. They Mm -hmm. had all these checks and balances and all these things in order to not have power concentrated in any particular place uh, too largely, uh, because of their, it was basically a Christian philosophical belief that human nature can't be trusted with mm-hmm. power, and so because of sin and and the, the Christian views of, of those sorts of things, we've got to set things up in a, in a certain way, and that's where we are in the world as well. Obviously, in the world, there's got to be some balances of power, or absolute power will corrupt absolutely, which is what happened during the 90s, and what, what the where the neocons tried to go, uh, thankfully it looks like they're failing, but the world is inevitably moving right now towards a uh, multipolar world, China, Russia, and the United States. Now, if the empire, uh, whenever an empire is declining into another situation, it can be very violent, it can be very bloody, uh, <clears throat> depending on how kind of tenaciously that, that empire holds on. With someone at Trump at the helm, we're really in a better situation. we got more potential to see that happen in a more peaceful manner. And with him appointing someone like Tillerson as his Secretary of State, who's interested in trade. 
He wants to put together oil deals so that we all can live a better lifestyle and not, not have to pay so much for oil. He's not interested in creating a boogeyman threat uh, so that the military-industrial complex can go to Congress and ask for another trillion dollars so everybody can have their cushy $200,000-a-year jobs in D.C. Uh, <clears throat> so Tillerson is the right man at the right time. Trump is the right president at the right time to move us more peacefully with less bloodshed into the obvious place where we're gonna, we have the best chance of peace in our world, uh, uh, general peace. I'm not talking about uh, utopian, you know, weird, uh, you know, sin and is going to leave the world or anything, but just a general peace because we've got a balance of power. Um, and so uh, I'm very excited about that. Putin talks about that at the end of the speech you just uh, you just mentioned. So I, I wanted to point that out. Now let's go back to uh, some of the stuff you said. Um, uh, my first question is, uh, what happened? What happened to Galitzin? Um, who is? Let me just remind the listeners here. Galitzin is the Soviet spy who defected. Was he, he a spy? Defected and he was probably regarded as the uh, the most significant uh, defector of all time. I believe he's the highest ranking KGB defector. Uh, very intelligent man. And his defection did result in at least 200 Soviet engines being uncovered. So he was the real deal. Anyway, so he wrote that article. He wrote that book that you held up. Mm -hmm. uh, he predicted many of the things that happened, which you were impressed with. But he also predicted that eventually uh, communism would would uh, reemerge, uh, mm -hmm. which you, you know, as a Bircher and, and others would be very uh, attuned to believing that the Soviets were capable of such tricks. But it didn't happen. Uh, and so you are now where you are. But my question is, what happened to Galitzin? You know, uh, that's a great question. He would be very old at this point. He would probably be, I, I imagine he must have passed away. I haven't actually checked that, but he'd be about 100 years old now. So he, if he was alive, he wouldn't be in a position to comment on Putin's Russia one way or the other. It'd be interesting to I find out if, uh, if there's anything on the record before he passed away on what he felt. Oh, well, I would love to do that. I was very impressed by that picture in your article, by the way, of uh, Solzhenitsyn um, uh, beaming at Putin. That was a uh, that was uh, very impressive to see. Um, oh, I want, maybe uh, another point I wanted to make here, and that's the question that people a lot of people ask when they hear about uh, Putin's Christian faith. He goes to church a lot. He goes to confession, uh, rebuilding churches. He's seen a lot with the patriarchs, and a lot of people just say, "Well." It's all for show. He's a politician. Politicians do that. I don't really believe that he's for real. Um, and my counterpoint to that is very interesting, which is if Putin is only doing it for political reasons, what does that say about the body politic in Russia? What does that say about the populace in Russia? What does that say about the people in Russia? What it says is, is that they are demanding a leader who is talking about Christian things. Mm-hmm. So for the person who's doubtful or who doesn't want to believe that there's a Christian movement going on in Russia, you really can't get away from it because, because the worst case scenario is that their leader, Vladimir Putin, is doing all sorts of Christian, moral, and traditionalist things uh, to appease a very vehement Christian populace. That's the worst case scenario. And the best case scenario is that he is for real, that he's a genuine Christian. Well, I think it's for real, and, uh, you know, you know them by their fruits, right? And so we see that um, um, uh, 
gay parades are illegal in uh, in in Russia, whereas our our president lights up the um, the White House with rainbow colors to celebrate the legalization of gay marriage. I mean, that's why we say we're trading places. Um, there, uh, so the Christian, uh, there's so much Christianity in public schools in Russia now that some people complain about it who are very liberal. Um, uh, he's done a lot of great things. He's um, they've closed the gambling casinos in Russia. You know, whereas you know gambling is proliferating. It's a it's state endorsed gambling here in America. Uh, we mentioned the 26,000 new churches. Um, they don't allow shows like The Simpsons and South Park to corrupt their youth. Uh, whereas our, our TV, we even have a show called Lucifer. Lucifer's got his own TV show in America. And you've got, I, I, you know, to, another example of my, my article, but there's countless examples. I don't watch TV these days, but uh, uh, Madonna dressing up as Baphomet for the Super Bowl halftime show. I mean, it's in-your-face Satanism on our television. And there they've got, uh, it's, all, it's, it's Christian content. Let me, um, let, me ask you, let me ask you a question, Jim. Uh, and uh, th this isn't in your notes or in your article, so uh, it'll be kind of fun to kind of ad lib here a little bit and kind of see see what you say. But I just like to get into the psychology of it because uh, the more I get into all this, the more I'm sort of fascinated with the psychology of it. Uh, and when I mean the psychology of it, I mean the difficult, painstaking process of changing in a huge tectonic shift, your views of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and how these things are developing. That's a very difficult thing to do for everybody, for all of us. So you went through a process. Uh, I don't know if it's been in the last year, the last two years, last five years, last 10 years, but you had to slowly, you know, you heard this information about a reemergence of Christianity in Russia. You didn't believe it. You thought it was Soviet propaganda. Things started to emerge a little bit more, a little bit more. You saw some more things. You heard some things about Putin. You figured out he you figured he was a faker. Then you heard more. You you got convinced. You start had you had to look at your own country and its own background and what it was doing, uh, either in you know in the recent future or maybe even in the in the far past. But anyway, uh, if you can, just tell me a little bit about that psychological process and 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 while you're talking about it uh what what kind of things right brain or left brain helped tip the balance because you know we're in an informational war now to try to get lots of other people to to uh make that tectonic shift well what tipped the balance i think was um um this won't register for some people but watching putin uh, make these statements and uh, this my observation is it's from the heart and it's not just one speech it's many things he said over time and uh, again this is he's not a Johnny come lately and there was a quote I was about to give before it was from this uh, I probably uh, will butcher his name but father uh, Tikhan uh, Shevkanov a Russian Orthodox monk said in 2001 so we're talking 15 years ago he said quote Putin really is an Orthodox Christian not just nominally, but a person who makes confession, takes communion, and understands his responsibility before God for the high service entrusted to him and for his immortal soul, unquote. Another thing that impressed me was brother, one of Brother Nathaniel's videos on how Putin celebrates Christmas. Uh, and he commented here, he doesn't go to a big cathedral in Moscow. He goes to a small village, stands with the children, and crosses himself and bows humbly before God. And he doesn't have to do that. 
you know, um, is he putting on a show for 15 years now? And what, what, for what, for what, what to trick who? Um, <laughs> I mean, the Russian people are behind him. His popularity rating is, is soaring in Russia. He's doing, um, he's doing good things for us. He watch out for his country's interests, whereas our country has been dominated for decades by members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Okay, I, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop you there and make my, a comment. Um, my, my, uh, uh, my book, Shadows of Power, is about. Oh yeah, right? go ahead. The globalist guys. Well, let, let me uh, let me comment on that. Um, and let me, let me first just say that one of the things I like to do on a regular basis or have for the last three or four years uh, since the Syria thing broke out is that every now and then I like to post a picture of Assad, uh, particularly Assad and his wife together, because uh, Assad is a uh, he's like a cool looking dude. He's like he looks like some dude who's uh, in British Parliament, you know, or going out on the town mm -hmm. after British. He looks better than guys in British Parliament. He's a he's a slick looking <laughs> guy. You know, he could be in a James Bond movie kind of guy. He's a good looking guy who wears a suit, you know, and uh, clean shaven. And uh, and he's not, you know, he's not wearing a turban. He doesn't have a big, long beard. He's not taking a rifle. And, you know, he's a sharp looking guy. Uh, and his wife is a uh, is a smoking hot. She's a uh, she's a uh, British. She's smoking hot. Uh, she's got long hair. She's beautiful. She's uh, uh, she was uh, I think she went to Harvard and she was headed headed to be an investment banker at Goldman Sachs when uh, when she married Assad. Um, and, uh, uh, and she's great looking and she wears the most fashionable, uh, uh, dresses from Madison Avenue that you can find. And so you see these pictures of these two and, and it, and it, it, it provides such a cognitive uh, dissonance <laughs> for people. Um, so I have fun doing that on a regular basis. Most recently, I, I, I found a, a very obscure, uh, video clip of, of Mrs. Assad saying some things. It, it was about 30 minutes long, so it wasn't very accessible. And and I was able to uh, download it and turn it into about a two-minute, very accessible video for people to view. And it completely ju just changes your view of things. Well, um, here's what's interesting. is no You don't find those images anywhere. It's just, they're just verboten. They are persona non grata. They are absolutely just off the radar. Um, and why would this be? Well, it would be because ex images are extremely powerful. Um, and so what I am uh, fascinated by, by what you shared there in your unscripted testimony, is that uh, it was really imagery that played a major role in you, mm -hmm. in you, in you changing your views. And right. it's not the uh, only well, view. It, That's it's not right. the only thing. Yeah, obviously there has to be documentation, there has to be facts, and there has to be a long kind of stuff. But imagery played a very, very, very serious role. So let's let's that's something to note. Yeah, so as long as we live in an era of Photoshop, uh, so we have to be careful about images these days. But yes, uh, uh, seeing him uh, actually in person, uh, the way he behaved, that was. Um, um, impressive to me. The image and the, the imagery you're talking about, the Christian imagery of Putin being in churches and mm -hmm. and all that yeah. kind of stuff. You, exactly. you can't you can't find that in, and humbling himself before God. You can't find that in major God. media. You know, do you ever see a Western politician do that <laughs> in church? And, yeah, and yeah. but those images are nowhere to be found in in Western media. Not in the mainstream. Too powerful. Right. And speaking of Assad's wife, by the way, at the time that um, Obama wanted to launch his first airstrike. CNN did a hit piece on her. I don't remember the details, but 
I said, this is a clear-cut uh, indication that the Assads are good people because when CNN does a hit piece, and I recall when in the 80s, when they went after Ferdinand Marcos's wife because she had 2,000 pairs of shoes or something like that, what they didn't mention was that uh, as First Lady of the Philippines, um, all, all shoe companies in the Philippines automatically gave the first um, uh, uh, shoe that came out of a new line off, off the uh, factory line to the First Lady. It was just a tradition. It wasn't because she was greedy and spending the people's money on it. Okay, it was just. A, and another one was uh, Princess Farah. What, 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 what was what was what was behind? Why were, why were they attacking Marcos? Regime change, you know, destabilizing the Philippines. Um, but before that, there was uh, Princess Farah, the Shah's wife, and they attacked her for dancing while people died. And, you know, uh, it, this goes back to the fact that they uh, there was an arranged um, uh, murder in um, um, a, uh, it was the Rex Theater in Abadan, Iran, where people were trapped in a fire. That was an arranged event. It was timed on the same day that the Shah was celebrating his uh, mother's birthday. So they will just say, look, the Shah's wife danced while people were dying. You know, that was part of the takedown of the Shah when they were, uh, after he announced that he was going to, you know, that goes back to Henry Kissinger and uh, wanting to destroy the Shah when he said he was going to nationalize uh, the oil industry and take it away from the Western powers. So, um, but going after the first lady of a country, that's a, that's a by CNN, that's a, that's a dead tip off. That uh, these are good people, right? Right. When the when the MSM is going out. Now, now, one thing I I, I want to make sure we discuss uh, during this talk, the people who are going to be listening to us, uh, they may be a, willing to agree with some of the things we're saying, but at some point they're probably going to say, "Now hold on a minute, you know, Vladimir Putin is not, you know, a saint, and he's not the world's greatest man in the world, and you know, and and I think." Uh, I think it's important, at least from my perspective, I can't speak for you, but I think it's important that we do admit the, the guy's running a country, okay? He's running a superpower. And and anybody who rises to the top, you know, compromises have to be made. There has to be some realpolitik, because I think that's the French phrase. But but uh, I'm not saying that he's the saint. I'm sure if he, if he does go to confession, he probably has some serious things to confess, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, I think... What we're doing here in this session is we're doing what Rush Limbaugh talks about when he jokes. He says, I am equal time. In other words, uh, since all you hear anywhere and everywhere is that Vladimir Putin is a, is a thug and a terrible, horrible villain, you know, we're trying to take a few minutes on a podcast to try to, you know, counterbalance that and kind of say, well, no, there's this, 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 and this, and you need to think about this, this, and this, and this. And so by the nature of of the way the the contest is right now, you know, those of you who are listening to, to us, just understand that, that you're going to hear mostly good stuff right now in this podcast. But, but yes, uh, there, there is a realization that, that uh, Vladimir Putin's a center. Uh, Russia is a country full of centers and uh, thank God they're, they're at, right now they're broken because of their problems in the past and they're turning to Christ and they're trying to work through things. It doesn't mean they don't have problems. It doesn't mean that we don't have things we can point on on their side. It doesn't mean that Putin doesn't have things that might be exposed, whatever. But uh, uh, but compared to the propaganda vision that we've all been fed and that we're all getting, uh, it's very, very, very different. And so we're trying to shed some light on that. So I just want to make that clarification. Caveat. Make that caveat. 
Kevin. Well, I think the guy's a saint, Mike, for myself. <laughs> well, he may be. I'm not going to leave that out. <laughs> but anyway, to, to get back to some of that sure. propaganda, of course, we should probably touch on the fact this whole Russian hacking claim um, is the latest demonization of Putin. Um, and uh, as you know, uh, you were talking about the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, you know, they asked the CIA, give us the evidence. They were concerned if he hacked the election, what's the evidence? And uh, the CIA couldn't give it. It's nothing but a soundbite. If you've noticed, after Hillary lost the election, and Hillary was the candidate of choice, I mean, you had Lady Rothschild coming on Yahoo Financial to say what a great, how great she'd be for business, and even George H.W. Bush said he was going to vote for her. They, they pulled out all the stops to get Hillary elected, and they still didn't do it. But after the election, you still had him trying. You had the George Soros-funded riots. You had the Jill Stein recount only in states that Trump won. And um, then you had um, the death threats against electors. And then uh, you had uh, Obama, who in October had said the election couldn't be rigged. Now he says it was rigged, was was hacked by Putin and the, the Russians. But no evidence whatsoever, not one shred of evidence has been uh, produced to confirm that. And uh, again, the, you know, the demonization of of um Putin, just like the demonization of Assad, is uh you know it's a it's not proof, but it's a further hint. When you see the mainstream media going after somebody, it's about time to say, well, you know, we know what the mainstream media stands for. If they go against somebody, it usually means they're a good guy. If they're uh, building somebody up, uh, it usually means they're a bad guy. So, uh, but the whole uh, the whole hacking thing, you know, if Putin was actually a aggressor, like they say he is. He was an international aggressor because of the Crimea, you know. Uh, if it's an international aggressor, he'd want Hillary in there. You know why? Because Hillary has no respect for the military. They, they're not going to take orders from her. And so if he if he was really an international aggressor, he should have hacked it in favor of Hillary, not uh, Donald Trump. So it doesn't even make sense. Uh, since, you're, um, since, since you're on the topic, let me, um, let me uh, spend a couple minutes talking about the uh, – the accusations against Putin that are all that always come up that are a stumbling block for a lot of people to believe that he may be a, a, a decent leader, uh, and and I, I deal with these uh, in a little bit of detail in my article. Uh, let's let's talk the one you you brought up first, which is he is aggressor. Putin aggression. Putin aggression. Putin aggression. Putin aggression. Putin aggression. Hack the emails. <laughs> hack the emails. Hack the election. Hack the election. You know how it goes. Um, and uh, repeat a lie long enough, and people will believe it. Um, uh, so Putin aggression. Well, first of all, uh, if you look at a map of Russia, uh, it's about half the size right now of its footprint when it was the Soviet Union. The Soviet uh, Russia is shrinking. It is not expanding. Okay, number one. Number two, uh, the U.S. made an agreement uh, with Russia in 1991 when uh, they brokered the deal to bring East and West Germany together. Uh, the Bush One administration. Uh, promise that NATO, the alliance of Western states that was basically in existence to uh, really overthrow Russia, uh, but they made a deal with Russia that if Russia would agree to East and, and West Germany reuniting, that NATO would not move any farther east than Germany. Well, since since that agreement, since that promise by uh, the U.S., uh, 12 countries have been added to NATO east of Germany, several of them on Russia's border. Okay, so we broke the promise, and and then you've had some skirmishes. Okay, well, in Georgia, 
south of Russia. This was in 2008, one of the early, earlier incidences. Uh, there was an uprising. Russia had to go in there, and uh, there was a fight, and they talked about Putin aggression. Well, it all came out, and all the facts are on the ground, and it's uh, it's been proven that it was Georgia, with the help of Mossad and CIA, that attacked Russia, attacked Abkhazia, and uh, the other small country, I forgot. And it, they were just responding in defense. Okay, uh, <clears throat> okay let's talk about uh, Ukraine. Uh, uh there was the constant drumbeat that you, uh, Putin is going to invade Ukraine. He never invaded Ukraine. Uh, well, they talk about Crimea. Well, he took over Crimea. He invaded Crimea. Well, no, he didn't. Okay, let's talk about Crimea. Crimea is Russia's largest naval base. Think about that. The largest naval base of the first or second largest superpower on Earth. Okay? It's been a part of Russia for a thousand years. It's where Russia, Russia's uh, first Christian king, Vladimir, was baptized. It's all a part of Russia. In 1954, Nikita Khrushchev, just as a kind of a little token gesture, uh, on paper made Crimea a part of the Ukraine, which was part of the Soviet Union. It's like one of our states. And, uh, and so only in a very technical sense has Crimea, for a short time, been a part of Ukraine, so to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed and everything kind of turned into chaos, well, sure, the Crimea was maybe technically part of Ukraine, but it's Russia's largest naval base. And so there was never any sense that anything would ever change. Well, now what happens in the Ukraine a couple of years ago is that uh, Victoria Nuland, who has said on the record, there's a YouTube video where she says they spent $5 billion in attempts to uh, overthrow the democratically elected government of Ukraine. Uh, it was a CIA coup. Uh, it was not democracy. It was uh, overtaking a democratically elected government. $5 billion spent by the U.S. to make this happen. Well, when a country goes from being democratic to being uh, authoritarian, thanks to the U.S., and the first or second largest superpower in the world has their largest naval base being threatened, obviously they're going to do something about it. But there's more. It's not just that. Uh, by treaty, Russia, even after 1991, there was a 1997 treaty, I think, that confirmed this, but Russia was allowed to have 25,000 soldiers in Crimea as part of their naval base operations and all that sort of thing. Okay, so what happens? The Ukraine blows up. It's no longer democratic. Nobody knows who's in charge or what's in charge, right? Uh, the, uh, the, Crimea, the people in Crimea don't like it, and so they have an election, and they vote 95% to 5% that they want to be annexed by Russia. They want to join Russia. Well, everybody thought that was a great idea when Kosovo voted to do that. The United Nations and all the Democrat people, they all thought, oh, that's so wonderful. Now we've got democracy. The Kosovo people have asked to uh, to withdraw and become their own nation. Wouldn't that be great? We, we, we all support that. Well, when the people of Crimea wanted to do that, suddenly it's a terrible thing and it's wrong. And it's and, and uh, well, that's what they did. And there's more. And that is that when Putin said, OK, you want to be part of Russia? 
That's fine. He didn't go invade Russia, uh, Crimea with a bunch of soldiers. There was already 25,000 Russian soldiers in Crimea. Mm. They just, they just kind of woke up the next day and said, okay, we're part of Russia now. Um, so Putin did not invade Ukraine. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I can't go into all the details here, but if you look into all the supposed allegations of Putin aggression, Putin aggression, Putin aggression, and you turn over the rock, it all looks the same. They're invalid, and they really are all actually, it's the pot calling the kettle black. It's worse than that, because mm -hmm. uh, Russia's not even the kettle or the pot. But uh, Western forces go in and cause a disturbance, and they cause uh, a military problem uh, on Russia's border. Russia responds, and then Putin gets called an aggressor. Uh, so it's really, it's really, uh, it's terrible. It, it's lies. It's evil. Um, but so, okay, we, so Putin, Putin's an aggressor. Okay, we got rid of that. Putin's KGB. Well, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, uh, was the head of the CIA. Does that make him necessarily? Uh, there might be other reasons you might think he's evil, but but just on its face, <laughs> for people dealing with these propaganda wars, you know. George H.W. Bush ran the CIA. So, okay, so Putin was part of the KGB. So what? Uh, not only that, but Russia has changed from being an atheistic Soviet Union mm. to being a Christian-based Russia. So that really doesn't apply. Uh, he's KGB, he's KGB, he's KGB. So what? Uh, what are some other uh, things you hear about Putin? Um, uh, uh, I don't have him at the tip of my tongue right now, so I can't... I can't uh, Oh, um, let's see. Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the spy. The oh, spy. Oh, yeah. uh, polonium poisoning. Uh, Alexander Litvinenko. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, if you guys remember the imagery, the power of imagery, it's really all about images. And so there's the bald-headed guy in the hospital bed who said that he was, he was poisoned by Vladimir Putin. And that's all you saw all over the media constantly. And it came back up again about a year ago because Parliament finally had their big investigation and inquiry into this matter as to what really happened. To prove beyond all doubt, with overwhelming amounts of evidence, that that uh, Vladimir Putin is a murderer and killed Alexander Lenfineko. Well, you uh, when the investigation and the report, final report came out, there was no evidence anywhere on the record of Putin or Russia being involved in Lenfineko's death. There was only speculation, and there was a bunch of anonymous uh, witnesses in secret closed hearings who gave the evidence. Okay? Same old, same old. Weapons of mass destruction, you know. Uh, trust us. Just believe us. We've got all this kind of stuff. So it's never been proven. Uh, <clears throat> Antiwar.com uh, has uh, suggested, based on uh, a report by uh, London's Independent, uh, pub, uh, the Independent, um, uh, that uh, just before he contracted the poisoning, Litvinenko was smuggling polonium uh, uh, from one country to another, and they are suggesting that he poisoned himself as he was involved in smuggling nuclear materials on the black market. Um, so that's another Makes one. Sense. Poisoning the spy. Uh, and we could bring up others. I, I, was there one you were going to bring up? 
Uh, well, I think you've covered the main ones uh, about uh, as far as Putin goes. I don't know if there's been, uh, let's see, um, you know, that he's a dictator. Um, we already mentioned uh, uh, the Crimea. Um, uh, I don't think you know, it, it's clear that uh, he's not an aggressor. If it, it is an international aggressor, he, it has forces here in the West. He has a, a forces in the Western Hemisphere. That would be a different story. We've got our forces around his borders, not the other way around. And it should be uh, clear to people. But unfortunately, sometimes we get so caught up in, you know, uh, long-standing ideas. Um, you know, one for me was uh, the fact that he was KGB and Galitza was KGB. And he'd made this glitch and he made some very accurate predictions. So I was uh, betting on that. But I think what happened was uh, in his own context of time, Galitzin was making a correct prediction. But something happened that nobody expected, which was a movement of God within Russia. Nobody was expecting that to happen. And that uh, upset the plans of the New World Order. Oh, here's another one. George Stephanopoulos uh, uh, confronted Trump in an interview. Uh, but but, he, but Trump was also con, uh, confronted in a debate. It was great, a great Trump moment, where the 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 very typically unbiased uh, uh, debate moderator. Uh, very unbiased, yes. Yes, they they they, they said to Trump, well, "Why are you saying that you want to get along with Putin? He's a murderer. He killed journalists. You know, everybody knows he killed journalists." And Trump said, "Well, you know, I'm not aware of that." He says that would be terrible if he did, but. I'm not aware of that. Can, can you prove that? Who are you talking about? Well, and during the debate, the, the moderators couldn't couldn't come up with anything, and they, they looked stupid. Trump called their bluff, who's about the only person in the world at that level who has the stones to do such a thing. Um, but then in, a, in another uh, interview on TV, George Stephanopoulos asked him the same thing, and Trump responded and said, you know, can you give me a name? Can you give me some evidence? Uh, and uh, George Stepanopoulos uh, gave the name of a human rights activist, Anna Politkovskaya, if I'm saying it right. And uh, and Trump says, well, that'd be terrible. He says, I've never seen any information, any proof that he killed reporters. So, you know, your name and a name, but what, where's the evidence? Well, if you look at the evidence of, the, uh, of this case of this human rights activist, um, there is no evidence. There were several investigations in Russia that came up with no evidence that that Russian government had anything to do with it. Of course, Western critics are going to say, well, I don't trust Russian hearings, but that doesn't turn non-evidence into evidence. They still don't have any evidence. And if you look at the wiki page that talks about this investigation of Anna Polakovskia, uh, they only have one little thing they can throw out there that points to possible Russian government involvement, and that is that the uh, the Russian government was... was uh, uh, wiretapping her emails. And so I said, well, does that mean that everybody in the United States that has an email account that was murdered was murdered by the NSA and the U.S. government because some, because they tapped their emails? You know, uh, everybody's emails are tapped. Uh, it's, it's, it's just pitiful. I mean, the, 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 the quote-unquote evidence is pitiful. So that's another one that uh, that needs to come out. Uh, we already mentioned Le- Lenfinico. Uh, do I got any others here? Um, uh, well, let's leave it at that. I, I want to, uh, let, let's switch conversation here for a little bit. Um, and, uh, let's go down memory lane because I'm, I, I really like your, uh, your background in the past that, uh, for, as a 
prologue to this, you know, these current events. Uh, question one um, would be, uh, uh, John Birch Society. Uh, I've heard thoughts here and there that the John Birch Society was infiltrated, that they were controlled opposition and that kind of stuff. For someone who's so close to that movement, tell me what you think about that movement and to what degree it's fully legitimate and to what degree it might have been compromised. Well, I think um, it's fair to say that uh, it was the only organized movement that was um, uh, bringing to people's attention the uh, drive for world government, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Federal Reserve. It was publishing all those books um, while also opposing uh, upholding the Constitution as it continues to do. And so there's many uh, great things I can say about it, and um, uh, it continues to stand for those things. Now, I think that... Um, where they've missed, um, they did not call 9-11, um, um, did not really investigate it very much. They said that, you know, our, our intelligence failed, but they didn't look at it as a uh, inside job or a Zionist um, job. Um, and I think they missed a great opportunity because they've been talking about conspiracy for years. When 9-11 happened, they did not get on board with that while the entire truther movement was being birthed. Um, and why do you think that yeah. is? Do you think that's because they were infiltrated, or do you think they were just old, tired dogs who just didn't have the fight in them anymore? Or why do you think that happened? Well, I, I will say this much: that um, you know, uh, a blind spot for me um, being involved with them for a long time was the threat of Zionism, and I never understood just how lethal Zionism is. And you know, they never discussed uh, the state of Israel or Zionism in, in the JBS. John Birch Society. And I have to say, in fairness to them, one reason for that was that you know, if you go back to the 1964 Republican convention, when Barry Goldwater was nominated, Nelson Rockefeller gave a speech denouncing extremists. And he said, we're, he, I haven't got the exact quote here in front of me, but he's, he said, we can, uh, he denounced the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis, and the John Birch Society. And that speech kind of put the, the John Birch Society in the racist category, even though it was completely non-racist, and they were accused of being Nazis, okay? And so they're very sensitive from the early days of defending that, and they didn't want to appear to be anti-Semitic or associated with Nazism or the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, having said that, they are overly blind, I believe, on the issue of Zionism. It's something that it took me a while to wake up to. And by the way, I'm, I am half Jewish, a Perloff is a, you know, a, Americanization of Perlovsky, the Perlovs were, Perlovskys were Russian Jews, came over here in 1904 during one of the pogroms. Um, but it's very clear to me that the Rothschild establishment, and just you look at the, 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 the oligarchs that um, Putin kicked out, they were mostly Jewish, and uh, they'd taken over half the wealth of Russia and uh, tied back to the Rothschilds. One of them was arrested, all his assets went to Jacob Rothschild. The Rothschilds formed Israel. Israel is not a, this takes the whole area of Zionism, but Israel is not a rebirthing of biblical Israel by God. It is a political maneuver by the Rothschilds. I mean, the Balfour Declaration, by which Britain, during World War I, promised a Jewish homeland in Palestine to the Zionist Federation in return for bringing America into the First World War on Britain's side, that was issued to Lord Walter Rothschild. And it was the, the banker James de Rothschild who bought up so much landed Palestine for the uh, Zionists that he was put on uh, Israel's 500 shekel note. 
All right, I'm gonna stop. I'm, I'm gonna stop you there because we. Uh, not that I'm afraid of the subject, but we've got a, we've got a whole podcast that we. Heard of your question by the John Birch Society, but I'm just saying this is a this was no that a that's spot for me, and I was behind the curve on it. Well, but and that I, but that also yeah. explains why why they would have, uh, um, sort of not has been uh, as uh, as salty and uh, effective here in the last couple of decades as, as they were in the past. Now, uh, another question I've got for you in your article, most recent article here, you, you include a video clip of uh, uh, McDon- uh, Larry McDonald. Yeah. Larry mm-hmm. McDonald. Uh, McDonald. Yep. Uh, who was uh, chairman, head of the John Birch society for a time. He was also a congressman in Georgia. Correct. And uh, I live down here, by the way. And when I drive to Atlanta, there's the Larry McDonald, uh, highway on the interstate. Um, but he, uh, in that clip, uh, I'm not sure, I haven't watched that actual clip. I think I probably have several times, but I, I didn't watch it in your article. But but McDonald would talk a lot about the kind of things Birchers would talk about, which is that, uh, you know, we've got a, a weapons uh, race going on on both sides of the Atlantic, but uh, it's really banksters that fund both sides. And we need to get beyond uh, just the uh, what what's in front of our face and the propaganda and realize that uh, the real evil is the is uh, these bankers that are uh, making money off all the weaponry. Well, uh, what is it? Six, seven months, I think you say in the article after that particular interview, uh, which was on, you know, one of the major networks. Uh, he died in uh, the uh, Korea flight over Alaska 007. Is that what it's called? 007, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and so I just wanted to ask you about that. Uh, what do you personally think about that? Do you think that uh, that that crash had anything to do with McDonald? We certainly thought so at the time. I mean, at that time, John Birch Society was considered the world's uh, most organized anti-communist group, and he was the new head of it. And he was handsome. He was articulate. By the way, in addition to being a congressman, he was also a surgeon. Very intelligent man. If you watch that clip. He's been attacked by um, uh, Tom Braden, CFR, CIA, who's ridiculing the idea of conspiracy, and he very articulately defends it. He talks about Carol Quigley's book. This is 1983. This is before the Internet. I mean, this is this is uh, early alternative media. But as the young, vibrant head of the John Birch Society, replacing Robert Welch, who founded it in 1958, he'd just taken over after Welch had run it for 25 years. We thought it was a pretty strange coincidence that he happened to be in a flight that was shot down by the Soviets, and it certainly uh, did nothing to soften our view of the Soviet Union at that time. Um, there's been different theories on that. You know, the original news reports were that the plane was not shot down, but that it had landed uh, on one of those Soviet islands. And um, then the story changed, and they said it was lost at sea. There was people who believed that, in fact, it was... Um, uh, it did land and that the passengers were hauled off for questioning or sent to gulags and never to be heard from again. Uh, some people think the original story, you know, about uh, being shot down and decimated was true and that he died at that time. I don't know what the story is, but that is one of the still one of the history's mysteries, you might say, that is unresolved. Uh, it's not something I have tried to vet in recent years, but something that's still certainly weighs, weighs on our mind from that Cold War era. Yeah, I've got a friend, personal friend, who um, whose relatives were in that flight, and he spent, you know, a couple decades now trying to get to the bottom of it. You know, it's got his website and that sort of thing, and it's uh, it's not easy. Um, all right, uh, similar question. Um, uh, what, 
there's various theories out there, but what would be your theory as best as you might know on why the Soviet Union did collapse? You know, there was always this belief, included with the John Birch Society, that ultimately the Soviet Union had been, um, was controlled by the West. And, you know, first of all, you could look at the Bolshevik Revolution. No question that the Rothschilds financed that. We know all about Trotsky being sent with $20 million in gold by Kuhn Loeb and company, Jacob Schiff, Paul Warburg, who was the founder of the Federal Reserve, sent him there. Um, Woodrow Wilson even intervened to make sure he got through. Uh, Canadian, when the Canadians detained him. Uh, at the same time, uh, Paul Warburg's brother Max made sure that Lenin got into Russia with gold on, a, on a, what they called a sealed train. And we know that uh, Freemasonry was involved in the downfall of the Tsar. And if you read a wonderful book by Jury Lena, Under the Sign of the Scorpion, you know, he did tremendous research into the Soviet archives after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He found that the orders to kill the Tsar didn't originate with Lenin. It came from New York. It came from the Jewish Zionist bankers. Um, they wanted to wipe it out. You know, Bolshevism and Talmudism go hand in hand. And um, so the, the bankers in the West had everything to do with the creation of the Soviet Union and in propping it up. If you look at World War II, uh, Stalin would not have withstood the uh, onslaught of Operation Barbarossa without all the uh, millions of uh, countless millions of dollars of Lend-Lease aid that was flowing in all the tanks and, and uh, torpedo boats and, and railway cars and machine guns that were coming in from the West. And we favored the Soviet Union to a large extent over our own troops. MacArthur would have told you that. His men couldn't get supplies while uh, were, were aircraft were being sent to the Soviet Union. And by the way, read uh, Major Jordan's diaries. He was a Lend-Lease expediter. We, we expediter. We even sent them the plans and lab equipment and materials for the making of the first atomic bomb. Um, and you go back through the Cold War years, David Rockefeller's plane had, had landing rights in Moscow, his private plane, during the height of the Cold War. And Chase Manhattan Bank had its headquarters at 1 Karl Marx Square. I mean, I mean, they were giving the Soviets loans at 0% interest, and they were helping them build factories. And this is true of Cyrus Eaton and Armin Hammer and all these other wealthy bankers in the West who were propping up the Soviet Union during the Cold War. It seems like... Um, it was, to a certain extent, a phony war. Um, it seems to me also that it's no coincidence that the, the start of the Cold War began with the start of the State of Israel. You know, the first movie about, r real movie about uh, the threat of communism was called The Iron Curtain, starring Dana Andrews, and that came out in 1948. 1948 is also the year that Israel was founded. And, you know, Israel is a, a proxy state of the Rothschilds. If you read David Ben-Gurion's um, comments from Look Magazine in 1962, he said that the seat of world government is going to be Jerusalem. And they've been saying that for a long time. This is why they want that. This is uh, what was predicted in the book of Thessalonians in the Bible, was that from uh, the rebuilt temple, the uh, man of lawlessness would, would reign. This is where the Antichrist is going to reign. And that is what Zionism is really about. It's not about the rebirth in the biblical Israel. But central to their plan has not just been world government, because, you know, the Antichrist, as I've mentioned before, probably on your show before, you know, um, the Bible predicts in Revelation that there's this dark figure called the Antichrist. Who I, 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 I'm, I'm going to stop you here for a little bit because we've gotten okay. a little off the reservation. But but okay. I, I think you're going to get there. But, but I'm asking you, why did the Soviet Union collapse? And I guess you're going to tell me 
that whatever agenda they had for the Soviet Union must have changed. I think that it, uh, its season had completed and the time had come to create greater Israel. And so the Soviet Union had to disappear as a threat. And that's why I was talking about that coinciding of Gorbachev and Glasnost with the first attack on Libya and the shifting of the focus of the military industrial establishment, which is controlled by the deep state from communism. Once that threat goes away, all of a sudden we've got this Muslim terrorist threat and all the shift, shifting of uh, our military went on to that, uh, culminating, of course, after 9-11 with all these wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, Syria, always under a false pretext. And we know that these wars were planned in 2001 because we've got that video clip of General Wesley Clark, former commander of NATO, saying that he was in the Pentagon after 9-11. And they said, we're going to go, we're going to take out seven nations in five years. And that included Libya and Syria and Iraq. So they needed pretext, but it was already planned. We know that it was already planned. We, 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 we both uh, quote that story in the articles we wrote this week. Right. Uh, well, let me let me ask you this. Um, then, if a decision was made at a higher level, as you think, to collapse the Soviet Union, how did they do that? Um, and uh, why why did if if you think the motive was for greater Israel, in other words, switch the villain to I guess you're saying switch the villain to Arab Muslims so that we can start bombing Arab nations, which we did. Uh, to prepare for a greater Israel, if that's what you think the motive is, why, why does the Soviet Union have to go away? Um, well, uh, you need if you're going to concentrate all of your military uh, force and all of your um, income and all that expense and development of weapons on the Middle East and the Muslims, uh, you can't have it focused on on this great threat of the Soviet Union, which had been the um, would have been troubling us for uh, all those decades. Okay, so, um, yeah, so the, 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 there is, at some point, there is finite resources, and so they, they readjust, readdress the resources to do that. Perhaps, maybe, as uh, to go along with your little theory here, um, that they thought that opening up Russia to democracy, quote-unquote, was going to work really well long-term. In, in fact, it really did work very, very well for about 10 years in terms of, what maybe what they were hoping to accomplish, but uh, perhaps it backfired. I'm sorry, uh, backfired on whom? Uh, uh, you're talking about the West. The, the, the global Soviet. bankers, the, the 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 ones who are uh, the deep state who are calling the shots here. They they thought collapsing the Soviet Union and bringing in a more democratic Russia was going to actually serve their purposes for the new world order. But 10 years later, all of a sudden, Russia refines itself in terms of its mm -hmm. Christian roots, and a bunch of things start, of ha start to happen, so it really got away from them. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what happened with the rebirthing of Christianity, which I think they thought they had crushed. You know, the uh, Bolsheviks under Lenin and into Stalin, they destroyed uh, 60,000 churches and murdered 300,000 priests, and I thought that, I think they believed they could destroy Christianity and destroy the Orthodox Church there. But it didn't work out that way. The church continued to live underground. And with the uh, removal of communism and then the removal of the oligarchs who were looting uh, Russia by Putin, uh, all of a sudden you had this reemergence of Russia as a power and as a Christian nation and ex experiencing um, Christianity on a level that's, I think, right now probably unparalleled in the world. Well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of wind us down here because we could – 
go on and on and a lot of interesting things. But so we started this podcast basically. Uh, we both written an article uh, this week, uh, just in review. Yours is at jamesperloff.com. The unthinkable has finally happened. Russia and America have traded places. And of course, in terms of trading places, you're talking about being a moral light to the world. Um, and my article at globalstoryline.com uh, is Trump's Secretary of State pick received Russia's Order of Friendship Award. Uh, in a multipolar world, is is it bad to be a friend of Vlad? Um, so that's that's the articles that we've written, and basically just talking about uh, the world is changing. Very interesting things are happening. Tectonic shifts. Uh, I think I told you uh, privately on the phone a couple days ago that um, I think the biggest story of the century, uh, the past hundred years, is what's happened in Russia, from mm -hmm. the fall of the Tsar, the Bolshevik Rev Revolution, the uh, horribly murderous atheism for mm -hmm. several decades, that collapsing Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, reemerging in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that, that's that got to be the story of the century, in my opinion. Um, and now we're seeing similar, very huge shifts happening in America uh, with a very strange uh, leader of it right now, Donald Trump, uh, if you can call him a leader. Um, but uh, <clears throat> that's happening, too, with uh, the power of many of the gatekeepers in the major media. Their, their, their power and influence is dwindling. Uh, a lot of things are changing. A lot of truth is getting out there. A lot of interesting things are happening. Yes, uh, it's been um, uh, there's been major shifts. You know, the Brexit vote in England was, a, uh, I believe, a measure of the rise of populism and uh, public awareness. It was a breaking away from that new world order. You know, uh, the EU uh, was is a regional microcosm. Of world government. That's what it was designed to be, just as NAFTA was supposed to be turned into the North American Union. In Trump's uh, election, uh, and I, you know, I still have reservations and, and watch him very guardedly, especially he's surrounded by a number of very strong Zionists, and I'm concerned about the possibility of a false flag early on his watch. Again, Israeli uh, originated, but there's no denying the fact that Donald Trump was elected as a result of the rise of populism and alternative media in America, um, uh, basically knocking the sales out of the mainstream media and the Bush-Clinton um, hegemony and their hold on American politics. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to stop us there and say uh, uh, good discussion. And uh, it was fun that we uh, both wrote articles that were similar this week. Um uh, next week will be interesting with the confirmation hearings of uh, mm -hmm. Secretary of State uh, uh, elect, well, Secretary of State uh, proposed uh, Rex Tillerson, uh, Chairman of Exxon, uh, and and uh, much of the things stuff that we've talked about in this podcast, I think, is going to be talked about by the senators themselves mm -hmm. and and the rest of the major and alternative media on these issues of, of, you know, what's it mean to be a friend of Vlad? Is that good or bad? And uh, so it'll be fun to listen to and watch that. So anyway, have a great holiday, uh, not a holiday, um, have a great uh, winter uh, session in that many feet of snow in New England or whatever you got up there. And I'll see if I can, Never know. I'll see if I can uh, navigate the half inch we have here. I'm a little scared about it. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, uh, I'm waiting to see if RT will now hire us as commentators. Uh, 
the, they might say, if you guys keep butchering those Russian names, we're just not going to be able to have you on. <laughs> well, I'd like to be an RT, but I don't know when that when when that big salary comes. I don't know. We might get uh, we might be uh, become sort of toothless like the uh, the Birch Society. So maybe maybe where we are is a good place. Uh, well, we'll let's keep uh, yeah, let's keep uh, using our own um, our own uh, God guided uh, motives um, to tell people the truth and keep learning. I'm still in the learning process, but um, I'm very thankful to uh, be at this place where uh, I'm not. Uh, you know, in the uh, matrix and, uh, you know, uh, believing what I'm seeing on mainstream media and uh, very glad to be part of the fight for truth. And uh, to me, it was a great delight to learn, as I expressed in this last article, that uh, Russia is not uh, what the mainstream media is saying it is. And that gives me some hope that uh, if a world leader can emerge who's not part of that Rothschild-dominated New World Order, maybe there's hope for the rest of the world, too. I don't know if you saw a, a tweet that I made um, or a Facebook post, but... Uh... Yeah. I unfollowed you. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the uh, but uh, I uh, there I, I did I looked at the Rex Tillerson's uh, Wikipedia page, and uh, in it they talk about how he um, stood up to the Rockefellers. Well, the, you know, Exxon is a descendant of Standard Oil, which is the Rockefeller Enterprise. Right. So, I, you know, my guard went up when I heard that it was from Exxon. No, there was a I big uh, there was a big shakeup where the uh, Rockefeller family. Uh, tried to, uh, uh, I don't know the exact tactics and politics of it, but basically they took a position within Exxon that was going to separate the CEO having not so much control over the company or that sort of thing. And uh, anyway, uh, the Rex Tillerson opposed what the Rockefeller family was uh, hmm. wanting to see happen at Exxon, and he won. He opposed the Rockefeller family. They didn't get what they wanted. He got what he wanted, and uh, it was a major, it was a major development at Exxon. So uh, that might give you a little bit of uh, encouragement to know that he is uh, not a Rockefeller lapdog. Okay. Well, I did uh, hear a few months ago that the Rockefellers in the process of disinvesting from oil, which was really strange to hear from the Rockefeller family. So maybe it had something to do with that. But I need to look into that. Uh, Tillerson Rockefeller conflict. That's the first I heard of it. You're mentioning it right now. Be a great, be a, I think it'd be a great thing to do extensive work on because all we have right now, all I could find was a was a paragraph in Wiki. So that's great. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go. Uh, always enjoy talking to you and uh, glad you're uh, doing your work and uh, have a great day. Okay, thanks so much, Dean.